Father, we thank you for this word that is set before us today, and we thank you for the growth and the expansion of the gospel, and we thank you for the way that it took place and for the way that it is described for us here. Bless us, this congregation meeting in this place, as we look at these words. Reveal to us what you have for us to learn, to believe, to rejoice in, and to do as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sit here today, some of you are home. And what I mean by saying that some of you are home is that you are people who are natives of the city of brotherly love. You were born somewhere in and around Philadelphia. Now, I, I appreciate the fact that some of you who are born in these neighborhoods, probably all of you who are from these neighborhoods, can articulate for me careful distinctions that exist between Roxborough and Maniunk and Plymouth Meeting and Conshohocken, and you would argue about the fact that you're not from Philly, you're actually from one of those places. I get it. I've heard it. I actually, I don't get it, but I have heard it. For the rest of us who are not from around these parts, uh, you're Philadelphians. If you root for the Phillies, that's who you are. It's a big area. You get to be called by that name. You are at home. And there's something wonderful uh, in your lives about that kind of stability, that kind of rootedness within the community. There are, are things that you have been doing and things that you've been seeing all of your lives that you can point to and say, yeah, this is my home. And your kids can say the same thing. Others of us are here by way of relocation. Perhaps our company itself moved at some point and we ended up here, or perhaps we got transferred to a branch of the company that was here. Maybe your parents moved here, and as a result of what your parents were uh, called to do, then you came along as well, or maybe a spouse found a job here. Some of us are no doubt here because opportunity existed here, and we came in, and probably some of us aren't really sure exactly how we ended up here. That there were some seemingly disconnected series of events that God and his providence knew and worked out so that we ended up here in Philadelphia. In any case, uh, those of us who are in that department have been relocated. We have been now placed in this particular part of the world, and relocation can be hard. It can be hard because you have lost a sense of rootedness, of places and of sites that you're familiar with, of things that have been with you since your youth. You can't drive down the street and point out to your kids, that's where my parents lived. That's where my grandparents lived. You can't visit a cemetery where your parents are buried because you're not at home in this area. You don't have the loyalty to the sports teams. You don't understand all of the things that go on around you. You still take incorrect roads when you're trying to get somewhere and figure out exactly where you are. You miss family. You miss old friends. But there is also something good about relocation. And the good thing about relocation is that it forces us to explore new places, to understand new cultures. It forces me 
to try to understand, okay, what are the distinctions between these communities? Why do people make a big deal about them? It forces us, likewise, to make new relationships when otherwise we might be very comfortable with the ones that we've had for many years. So there are good things about relocation. And our passage today highlights the intention of God to relocate the early church, to move them about. And that comes to us not only here in Acts chapter 11, where we see it so plainly, but really we've been building to this point throughout Acts, and it continues on to our own day as well. I know even probably when I read it or when you look at this passage, it seems like an innocuous little passage. Uh, like an informational passage that is presented to us just to let us know where people are and who is doing what. And yet, I guess I would urge us not to underestimate the significance of the transition that is represented before us in this text that's here today. So let's look at the text with the theme of relocation, and we're going to look together at new places, at new people, and then at what remains the same. Okay, so when you relocate, you've got new places, new people, but some things stay the same, and that's what we'll look at. First of all, then, a new place. If you, if you have your Bibles open in front of you, uh, you might find that at the heading of this section, this is what's written in my Bible here, at the heading of this section, it says, the church in Antioch. So a new place, Antioch. We haven't thus far read a lot about Antioch in Acts. It's been mentioned before, but Antioch is no small city. It's no podunk town. It is probably the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So you've got Rome and Alexandria and Antioch. Probably Ephesus is somewhere in that mix as well. But it's the third city of Rome, a very cosmopolitan big city. Just to give you a little bit of the geography, though you can look at the back of the Bible at your maps, if you think of the Mediterranean, we're up in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, a little bit inland. That's where we are. So north of Israel is where this is taking place. And Cyprus, which is referred to, is a little island, a little bit, well, in the middle of the Mediterranean, but also northeast corner up here. And then Phoenicia is a strip of land alongside of Israel, along the coast of the Mediterranean, heading up northwards in that direction. So we have come to Antioch, this city, and at first sense, you're like, okay, we've, we've moved to Antioch, but the significance is that Antioch, from this point on, pretty much, in the book of Acts, is going to become the central city, the hub, from which the mission of the church emanates. The starting of the church in that city is mo no small event for us. To, to this point in Acts, of course, the church has been Jerusalem-centric. Everything has been based in and around or from Jerusalem itself in geography, in terms of the leadership of the early church and the mission orbit of the early church. Everything was flowing in around connected to Jerusalem, which if you can allow us the term, Jerusalem is HQ. It's headquarters for the early church, at least up until this very chapter. And that makes sense to us. It makes sense to us practically speaking. We get it, okay, things with Jesus ended and began in Jerusalem, and that's where the disciples found themselves, that's where Pentecost took place, that's where Jesus said from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Practically speaking, Jerusalem makes sense 
as a starting point. And historically speaking, Jerusalem makes sense as well. This is the city that God had provided for the Jews for many years, even though they were in and out of it. This is where the temple was. So practically speaking, it makes sense that Jerusalem is the center. Beyond that, theologically speaking, it makes sense. So, for example, think of the uh, call to worship that we had this morning. Uh, Jerusalem, built as a city to which the tribes grow up, uh, go up. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There, thrones of judgment were set. People go to Jerusalem to give thanks. So theologically, it makes sense that the church is Jerusalem-centric. And even prophetically, it makes sense. It was, after all, the prophets who foretold the restoration of Jerusalem to its significance. Jerusalem is the place, it's the city, it is the mountain to which the nations would stream in that day. So as the prophets look forward to the coming day of the Lord, this is the place where everybody is going to go. If you were an early Jewish Christian, you expected that everything would flow unto and from out of Jerusalem, and it would be that way forever. But there is another vein of biblical prophecy and biblical history, and that vein, though sometimes obscured because of the prominence of Jerusalem, actually is wider and deeper than Jerusalem itself as a dwelling place for the people of God. So we read earlier in our service that great passage from Isaiah chapter 19. Every time I talk about that passage, I say, I can't imagine what the people thought when they heard Isaiah declare that. For you and me, we hear that, Egypt and Assyria, okay? Egypt and Assyria will worship as well. But in that language, Egypt and Assyria are the classic enemies of God. They're the enemies of Israel. And when you say that Egypt is my people, and the Egyptians and the Assyrians are going to worship together, and Israel will be the third a blessing in the earth. You're, you're saying something deep and something remarkable. So if, if, if you, if this is the, my hand is the Mediterranean. So essentially what you're saying is Assyria and Egypt over here, they're going to be a blessing. They're going to be united together in worship and Israel will be the third amongst them. So there's a vein of prophecy. Jesus taps into that, of course, when he's talking to the woman and it's on the front of your bulletin. When she says, you know, our, our fathers say we worship here, you Jews say that you worship on that mountain, and Jesus says, woman, I tell you, a time is coming and is now here when neither on this mountain nor on that mountain will you worship, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth for those are the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. So Jesus taps into it and he says, pay attention because something significant is about to shift. It's not the mountain you think as Samaritans, and it's not the mountain that Jews think either, from which worship will emanate. Abraham traveled this route. So Abraham starts off over here in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's brought down into Israel, into the Promised Land, and then no more is he in there when he's sent down into Egypt. 
back and forth along this route, so too would Israel travel this same route, right? They would be at times down into Egypt where they were in captivity, at times over here in Babylon where they would be into captivity as well. And now, unsurprisingly, but surprisingly to those who are in it, the early church travels this exact same highway. God moves them about. As this passage began for us, we're taken back to that persecution that arose over Stephen and Stephen's martyrdom. And then in Acts chapter 8, the people are pushed out. The people are scattered to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and to Antioch, as it is recorded for us here. A new place is being established with new things to see. Now let's consider the new people that are a part of this new place, this relocation of the church. Some of the people who are in this story are very familiar to us already. We, of course, know of Saul and we know of Barnabas. We'll come back to Barnabas in a moment as he is highlighted for us in, uh, in our story. But the people who initiated the church in Antioch are wonderfully unnamed. We don't know who they are. They are people who went about, scattered, and initially as they went about and they were scattered, they spoke only to Jews. Now that makes sense. They're they're traveling about. They themselves are Hellenistic Jews. They travel about and they tell the Jews that they run into about the things that are going on. But in verse 20, we read that some of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, Okay, so Cyprus, the island up there, Cyrene in North Africa. So, so get, the, get the route progress that we're on here. We're, we're coming up into Assyria. By the way, I want to say one thing. At, the, in, at one point in this story, we read about Agabus and others going down from Jerusalem. Uh, they're actually going north. We would call that going up from Jerusalem. But Jerusalem as the city on the hill is often described as people going down from it, regardless of which direction they're going. But in any case, so we're traveling this highway. Now, a man from Cyrene or men from Cyrene are finding themselves up here in Antioch together with people from Cyprus. And they begin speaking, not preaching initially, but they begin speaking the good news to the people who were there, to these Hellenists, to others who were in Antioch. Now, we read this word here, these Hellenists to whom they began speaking, and, and we've seen this phrase come up now a couple of times in Acts, and each time it has a little bit of a different nuance to it. I'm sorry to say that. But when it comes up in Acts chapter 6, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews who have come to faith in Christ. And remember, their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food, and that's the object of concern. But then the Hellenists come up again in Acts chapter 9, where they are, in fact, those with whom Paul is disputing. So in this case, they are Greek-speaking unconverted Jews, because Paul is debating with the Hellenists in that place. And here, by the context of what takes place, we have to understand what does it mean then when we read that they are speaking to the Hellenists. Here we understand this to be 
Greeks, non-Jews. That's the whole point of what's being said here. We're contrasting with whom they are speaking with when they were only speaking to Jews. So in this case, in this particular place, Hellenists refers to those who are Greek-speaking from whatever country they may happen to be. So lo and behold, in this cosmopolitan metropolis, unnamed, dispersed, relocated, scattered Hellenist Jews begin speaking to people, and they see the hand of the Lord at work. Now, one wonders, and this is what we have to us in scriptures, but one wonders, what did that look like? Did they just hear him talking so much about Christ that, that some of the merchants or some of the places where they live came up and said, what are you guys talking about all the time? Somehow they spoke the word of the Lord, the good news of the gospel, to the Hellenists were there, and the Hellenists started to believe. And it is in one sense unsurprising to us. In a cosmopolitan city, you have a melting pot, right? You have people from all sorts of races, people from various nations, speaking different languages, perhaps united by trade, by commerce, by one language that is not their first language, but they all speak this language. So that's how we communicate with one another. And so it's not surprising that in that context, the gospel starts to go to these various people in these various groups. But I bet that the Hellenist Jews who were speaking it to them were shocked. I bet they were amazed by these people then believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and turning to him. Jerusalem hears about it. This is the pattern that we've seen, right? In all of these circumstances, Jerusalem hears about what is going on, and they want to investigate what is happening up there. And so they send Barnabas, a man we know, a man who is a reliable man, a faithful man, a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, reminding us of all of the qualifications for the deacons that we found in Acts chapter 7. And this is the only place where we have this kind of description in the book of Acts. They sent Barnabas, a good man, to go up and to discern and try and understand what was going on. Why was Barnabas a good choice? Well, Barnabas himself is a Cypriot. He's from that part. He's a Hellenist Jew. He knows the culture that is up there. So it is a good choice to take this man who's from that area, who knows these customs, and send him up to investigate. More than that, perhaps. Barnabas is a man of a generous spirit. We've already seen that in his giving early on in the chapter in in. in, uh, in what is it, chapter 2 or 4 of Acts, where he sells his property and gives it the proceeds to the apostles as well for distribution. But he's also a man who we've seen who can make peace between people. Barnabas is the man who, when Paul came down from Jerusalem and everybody's kind of keeping their distance, Barnabas is the one who takes the time to introduce him to the apostles and testifies on his behalf. So they send Barnabas up there, and the church in every age needs men and women like Barnabas. 
Now, not all of us are going to have the same gifts and calling that Barnabas had in particular, but when I say that we need men and women like Barnabas, people who exercise good discernment, people who have the ability to establish good relationships, to bring peace where there otherwise might be conflict. I want to call them peacemakers. The church in every age needs people like that. So he arrives on the scene, new people in a new place. He sees what is happening, and he rejoices. He exalts in the grace of God that is being shown there. As a result, more people are added. So Barnabas says, all right, well, there are a lot more people here who are growing. We need more hands than mine to take care of these people. So he goes to Tarsus, finds Paul, and brings Paul back to this place, and together they minister in Antioch for a year. Now, what is, is significant about all of this is that we have not seen the ministry of the Twelve in any of this. None of the Twelve original apostles are mentioned here. This is new people in a new place. New servants of the Lord are being raised up. Agabus isn't one of the original Twelve, and when they bring that gift back down to Jerusalem, we see that they bring it not to the Twelve, but to the elders. And so we get a sense that immediately with the expansion of this church, with the relocation of this church, we're also increasing the number of the servants of the Lord and the leadership of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 26 gives us two important insights regarding uh, these people, and, and let me just read it again for us. And when he had found him, that is when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Two things that are significant then about this people. One could easily slide by us because of the familiarity of the language, but it refers to they met with, they taught the church in Antioch. These aren't just believers who are out there who need to get back to the church in Jerusalem. Rather, they are the full-blown, the legitimate church that exists now in this foreign area. And so for Luke to apply that term for them is no small thing. And secondly, we see then that they are called Christians in this place for the first time. Now, we don't know exactly all that was going on with this designation of them as Christians. It was probably a derogatory term that was applied to them. Uh, Jesus the Christ, which is a title that he is the Messiah, but nevertheless seems to have been something like a last name as it was Jesus Christ. And they hear them talking about this so much that they are labeled as Christians. And one can get it because there's probably a sense in Antioch of, well, what do we call these people who are here? Do we, do we call them Jews? Do we call them Hellenists? Do we call them Antiochians or Cypriots or Cyrenians? What do we call them? Let's just call them Christians. And with that, perhaps and probably derogatory label, what we see happening is the formation of a new community with a new identity where old barriers are being broken down old ways of categorizing people no longer make sense because there's a new ethos that is emerging 
within that new community. So things and people have changed, the places have changed, but some things remain the same. The church can travel all over the world. It can go from Jerusalem to Antioch to Conchahokan. It can include Jews and Gentiles, people of all races and people of all ages, but there is a heart, there's a core to the church that doesn't change regardless of where it is. Ancient paths aren't often rerouted. They are respected by the church wherever she finds herself. So Lauren and I have been uh, relocated uh, by the Lord a number of times in our lives. And many of the places, uh, the, the furniture pieces, the things that are in our home, they didn't survive from one move to the other move across the ocean and back over the ocean. One thing did, though. Some things remain the same. And, and, and there's this bottle of sand that sits up on a dresser that was filled by an 18-year-old Eric and a 17-year-old Lauren. When we decided that we were going to be a thing, I, and, and we saved that bottle. And wherever we went, that bottle went, and it sat on the dresser as saying, a lot of things may change, a lot of places may change, a lot of circumstances may change in our life. This one doesn't change. The church in Acts is struggling to identify what is our core, what is our identity when all of these tectonic shifts are taking place underneath of us? How do we know who we are? If Jerusalem isn't at the center, if that's not part of the core of our being, what does that mean? What about circumcision? What about the law as a whole? What about the dietary laws? What about practices of hospitality? How do we understand who we are as the people of God? It is one of the great questions of the book of Acts as this shift takes place. Can we be the people of God and worship in a city and be content to be there that doesn't have the temple? It isn't part of the original land that God has given to us. They struggle to figure out what that core is, and they're going to have to recognize at points along the way that it is shifting underneath their feet. That's what we talked about two weeks ago when we talked about Peter. Peter, you think that the dietary laws are at the core. You think that your ability to eat and be hospitable with Jews only is at the core. That's not at the core. Church has to work through these things, but at least we recognize a few elements here in this passage and that are remaining at the core. The centrality of the Word of God, the importance of people talking about their faith to other people, and the Lord blessing that effort, the presence of teachers and the teaching ministry within the church, and then the last thing that is highlighted for us here in terms of the core is once again this spirit of generosity that characterizes the people of God wherever the church goes. It's one of the ways you can recognize the presence of the people of God is this, this generous spirit that characterizes them. So they receive this response to the upcoming famine, and they respond to it by, 
and we recognize this language from Corinthians and other places, by each one according to their ability providing relief for this famine which is then taken down to Jerusalem. The child is now supporting the parent. That's probably happened or will happen in all of our lives at some point. The shift takes place where no longer is the parent the one who is taking care of the child, but the child starts to provide for the parent. And in this we see the way God is shifting the locus of the church, the hub of the mission activity of the church. So some details for us then about how God has moved the church to Antioch. He uses relocation to invigorate the church, whether that is a result of persecution, of sin, of famine, of migration, of new jobs, of new opportunities. God moves people about. He moves us from one place to another place. He reconfigures the community. He redistributes the gifts, and he brings certain people in certain places together. And as he does that, he reminds us all that we're not yet home, that there is a heavenly Jerusalem that is actually our home, that any of us who think of the earth as our home need to think one step further and to say that the one, the Jerusalem above, she is our home. So let's, let's just take that. I know that's, a, that's information about them, but digest it then to ourselves. So some of you who are sitting here today have been here for 15-plus years, since the first service that Christ the King had years ago. Praise God. You've got rootedness, rootedness within this church, rootedness within probably this community as well. If you've been here this long, you, you, this is probably home for you. Some of you have been here six months, and I suspect at every point in between that spectrum, somebody has come. So if we all raised our hands, it would be between one and six months and 15 years that we've all been together at this place. But God has constituted us through all of those providential things that went on in our lives to bring us together as this church in this particular location. What does He want? To be sure, there are things that don't change. He wants the community of his people to be a worshiping community, that which we're doing right now. He wants the community of his people, the church, to be a people who are growing in our love and knowledge of the Lord and our love for one another as well. I think we're doing pretty well with a lot of those things as a church. Always places to grow, but I think we're doing pretty well with them. What strikes me when we look at a passage like this and we go, okay, Lord, what do you have for us as our church here, is the faithfulness of the people who had been relocated to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they went with the result that the church grew. Speaking personally, I think... I think you guys, okay. I think you guys are a great group of people, a great group of saints, gifted of the Lord, blessed of the Lord. And I think that the Lord over the years has brought us through struggles, 
has brought us through trials, but has knit us together and is continuing to knit us together. I rejoice in that. But what strikes me is to say, God, as I prayed earlier, please use us for the sake of this community. Please give us the courage and the wisdom to be like these men from Cyrene and these men from Cyprus who went about just talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, and God blessed it, and the church grew. He relocates his church to invigorate his people, to bring us into new relationships with other people. And may he do that in our midst with the result that we speak delightfully of him, that we pray for the Lord's hand to be with us as we speak the word to others, and that many would believe and turn to the Lord. You are the children of Zion. Christians, the children of Jerusalem. You've been blessedly relocated. Put here, put together, with the intent that God, through us, would bless this community with the good news of the gospel that goes out from our mouths and out from our lives. Zion haste, your mission, high fulfilling. May the Lord make it so in our midst. Let's pray.